Hey there, this is Meg. I'm your host, and you are listening to Mental Status, a podcast about burnout for people in the mental health profession. Quick disclaimer, because you know that stuff is important these days. Uh, Mental Status is a podcast about burnout in the mental health field. It's for entertainment and educational purposes only. This is not therapy, and this is not clinical supervision. There are no CEUs associated with this podcast. Enjoy it and share it as you will. And if you're in a space where you're needing deeper support, please seek out therapy or supervision for yourself from somebody who is qualified to provide those services for you. Okay, here we go. Beautiful. Okay. Oh, all right. Let me take a sip of coffee before because <laughs> Monday morning mm-hmm. came in hot this week. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, it's a thing, especially before the holidays. I feel like my, I don't know, it's probably the cold weather and just all the like flurry of things, but like my energy tends to dip around this time of year. So yep. <laughs> all right. Well, welcome everybody to Mental Status. This is Meg and I am your host, and this is a podcast about burnout for mental health professionals. Uh, And I'm joined today by a super cool guest, and I would like to let them introduce themselves. So guest, who are you, where are you, and how are you doing today? Thank you for having me. My name is Rebecca Toner. I am a licensed professional counselor in Connecticut. Um, I am in private practice. I actually, I'm the clinical director of a group private practice um, and had my own private practice previously, which is part of my burnout story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Also clinical supervisor. I am an Andrea approved consultant. I'm making EMDR trainings. um, And I am the host of the supportive supervision podcast as well. So I really love supervision and supervision discussions about burnout and how to recognize it early on. Um, So I'm very glad to be here today. Awesome. Yeah. And it sounds like you have lots of, lots of stuff that you're doing, which is really exciting. And I imagine maybe at least for myself, who I I also do a lot of things (laughs) that can get a little overwhelming sometimes. So definitely I, uh, I'm pretty open. I have ADHD um, and I need to be doing a few different things and have a couple mm-hmm. different projects I could just pick up in downtime and have them be relatively low commitment. Um, but sometimes that's a double-edged sword and it feels very insurmountable. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> All right. Well, um, maybe we can just dive right in. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your journey. So where you've been with mm-hmm. burnout, where you've been professionally, just mm-hmm. yeah, where you've been. So yeah, I, I feel like I've lived in burnout, um, in all kinds of different ways, but like pretty much nonstop since grad school. Um, and so I'm like trying, it's like trying to leave a bad marriage. I think like just trying to get (laughs) away from it. Um, yeah, like it's just, it's the cultural norm, I think in our field, Um, and it's very normal to feel burnout, but it's not supposed to be the thing that we normally feel every single day. Um, and I think it really started at least for me when I was in undergrad, 
Um, I overloaded myself with classes. I worked. I was just like, go, 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 overachiever. Um, and it, same thing in grad school and then working for free with like internships and practicum and all that stuff. It was just nonstop. It was, it felt like grooming for early career stuff where, you know, you're the new person, you want to prove yourself, you want to learn so much. And I was extremely hungry to learn when I was early in my career, uh, doing crisis work. Um, so I was also out in communities that were just the communities themselves were very burnt out and, uh, going through a lot of difficulty with the heroin and opioid epidemic. Um, and I was doing a lot of crisis evaluation and referral and working way too many hours in a 24 hour program. And I was in emergency rooms. So that's a whole separate layer of like normalized burnout all around us. Mm-hmm. And then you know, from there, it was really trying to unlearn a lot of that and almost burning myself out, trying to unlearn burnout in private practice. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> well, I've mastered that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, once I got into private practice after I was licensed in EMDR training and all that stuff, um, I bit off way more than I could chew and I opened a group practice and it was fun for a little while. Um, but my heart really wasn't in it for most of the time. Um, and it was just kind of exhausting. I didn't love it. And luckily I had a friend who wanted to expand her group practice to my area last year. And, you know, with the pandemic, everything was online anyway, we basically just merged our practices and it ended up being so mutually beneficial. So I think I'm better with burnout now because I have, her and some of our other coworkers is kind of like a sounding board in my day job. Mm-hmm. And that helps me explore it in myself so that I'm not teaching it to other people as a supervisor. And I'm conscious of the messaging that I'm passing down to people who are newer to the field or who've been doing this for a million years, but don't really have a good roadmap for their own burnout. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I know that I've talked on here and with other people where a lot of the time, especially if you've been in the field for a while, the, the topic of burnout during grad school isn't communicated, I think, clearly enough. Um, and of course, there's a lot of stuff that graduate programs have to get through in order to meet criteria. Uh, however, yeah, I think the resounding sentiment that I've heard is like, we didn't, nobody really prepared us for like what this is actually like. And it sucked. No, <laughs> no it's crazy. It's you know, they definitely mentioned burnout when I was in grad school. Most of my professors did, but like, they didn't tell us what it was. (laughs) They just said, it's going to happen. You're going to feel burnt out. And like, meanwhile, I was being an undiagnosed at that time person with ADHD. I was the burnt out gifted kid trying to overcompensate for what I thought was my laziness or stupidity you know, not being able to understand something, learning in a different way. And so burnout was the place where I had always lived Mm -hmm. and no one really taught me about it. So it took me years, probably the better part of like seven, eight years after grad school to even figure out what that meant. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) That's a long time. That's a really long time. Yeah. Mm. And, And it's been forced there, you know? Like this burnout of 
achievement essentially yeah. like oh burnt out person you have to be trying harder than the hardest person and just continue getting the accolades and the good grades and right yeah I mean and that's like that's a big thing where the and not just the culture within mental health and in a lot of different professions but you know in mental health there is a lot of um rewarding for overwork and overextending yourself and we've created cultures where that is celebrated and um expected to some degree yeah totally and it carries right over into the workplace I mean how many of us have been in like you know a shared office or maybe a break room or something like that just bonding over how horrible it feels to be at work that day Mm -hmm. or you know, feeling hung over just from functioning and doing life and not even like drinking. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's, yeah, it's this whole, like, we all know what it is. And yet Mm -hmm. a lot of us feel very, um, I think trapped is an extreme way of saying it, but sometimes it does feel kind of like we're trapped in, in this cycle because, because of whatever reason, like student loans or our drive to help people or the culture that's been created. It's just like, yeah, it sucks. It's terrible. It is. It's, it's very capitalistic driven, I think. Um, and I mean, our field definitely didn't occur in a vacuum either. So like, right. you know, this area of everything being like, mass produced, especially my part of the country, like that, I think kind of translated into students, basically like new professionals being mass produced to meet the needs of various industries. And, you know, we're meant to be the ones who are counseling people through that, but ones that it's happening to, it's, it's crazy to watch it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so as you've gone into a supervisory role, um, how has that transformed your own understanding of your burnout? Oh my goodness. It was really mind blowing. And I didn't even know that much about how it had actually impacted me and what kinds of things had been passed down to me, good and bad from my supervisors, supervisors. Um, I didn't really learn about that until I, started supervising other clinicians, started getting into EMDR consultation, like the more training I had. And it was really just about almost doing like a supervision genogram type of thing. And like, what were those relationships like? What are the best and worst messages that have been taken from those places? Mm -hmm. And how can I be more conscious of what I'm passing on to my supervisees who are new or who are experiencing like really tough challenges during COVID, you know, or become parents while they're also finishing up, you know, certification and licenses and all that stuff. Um, it's definitely taught me a lot about myself in that process. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. That's a really cool idea too. Like doing the genogram, I hadn't actually thought of that, but it makes sense. Right. Cause like there's a lot of inherited um, knowledge and sort of messages about what it means to be in the field. Um, I mean, for you, like, what are some of the, what are some of those positive and negative messages that were Mm -hmm. inherited through your supervisory genogram? I think, let's see, I'm trying to remember back to my very first supervisor. I think she believed in me more than I believed in me because I was like a first year intern. So 
I had to actually do my practicum and internship while I was concurrently in classes. So I know some programs are you do all your classes first and then you do your field work. Mm-hmm. We did it at the same time. Um, and I was in an infant program <laughs> that it was, I was the first intern. Um, and we have just hired the first full-time clinicians who also were, you know, going through their own challenges. Um, and we had an actually burnt out overextended supervisor who meant very well. And when I could get a hold of her, she'd say these brilliant things about just like, you know, empowering me and forcing creativity and just like, this is what I really admire about you, or this is how to handle this really difficult, um, thing that you heard from, from one of your in-home cases and reporting it to DCF and walking me through that, like she would do the steps, but the problem was she was so overextended that I couldn't consistently get a hold of her. And it was just, that should have been more of a red flag to me rather than, oh, I'm the intern. I shouldn't need this much help. Um, and it, it really turned into this like negative self-talk that came from like my early elementary education when I had a math disability that no one discovered. Um, so it was automatic internalization. I think being a woman played into that too, of, I just should know this stuff or I should be better and not asking for that help. I realized years and years later, that was on me. Like I should have advocated more for myself, but I figured because I was the intern, I couldn't. Yeah. Which like in reality, I I think every professional you know, could use help and and support and guidance, but like an intern, (laughs) like that is the time that you get support. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it definitely changed, um, my ability to be very flexible with other people and their learning styles or the questions that they might have. And also the really great experience people just come to our field already having, um, So that's been a really transformative, cool way to kind of like re-energize myself. Like if clients are burning me out, connecting with my supervisees and my EMDR consultees, like is, fills my cup all the way. I save it for the end of the week for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's interesting, right? Cause like most of us, we, we get into the work in order to work with the clients and in large part, most of us really enjoy that work through and through. And a lot of the time it's like the environment that we're working in and all that kind of stuff that is creating the burnout. But it is really interesting to me when as a result of those environmental stressors and not having enough support, like Mm -hmm. therapists and mental health workers naturally sort of like gravitate toward each other and helping each other. Um, which like, you know, I, I specialize in working with other therapists at this point who are burnt out. And like, that is, that's where I want to be is like helping those helpers. And it's just like, it's great to see. Um, Mm -hmm. part of it makes me sad because it's like, we're so like the stressors of our job are so much so that it can create legitimate or, you know, exacerbate legitimate mental health concerns. And it can really like it can make shit really bad. <laughs> yeah. It re- like I I see a lot in my area. I see many people who um you know, if somebody posts something that in like a, a therapist group, right? And they post without too much detail or anything, but something that clearly has a little bit of nuance that should be explored in supervision. 
there's a clear divide between the kind of responses that it'll get, at least in my area. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who offer like a really creative, Hey, just so you know, I've had a lot of training in this area. There's a lot here that you probably don't see. If you're not already discussing it in supervision, give me a call. I'll get on the phone with you for 15 minutes, or we can set up like a full hour. I'll make sure I square aside that time for you, whatever, or join, you know, my peer group or whatever. Um, and then there are people who point out that there is supervision needed in some way and they get attacked with like this defensiveness and this fragility. How dare you? I have 25 years of experience in the field. And it's like, supervision is self-care. Like, and that just speaks to me to the kind of supervision trauma people probably have had Mm -hmm. where, it was a necessary evil that they needed to get their license or, you know, whatever, whatever certifications they had. Um, and they probably didn't have a very good experience with it. They didn't feel like maybe they could go into the depth of who they are as a person and bring that stuff forward and receive the help and support that they need in a vulnerable way. And it's honestly like, it's supposed to be parallel to therapy. Mm-hmm. So that also sets off all kinds of red flags for me for like, this person really doesn't want to work on their stuff. Like they're probably damaging people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the unfortunate part in that is how the foundational relationship with a supervisor when you're earlier in your career, I mean, I've heard people say like, I loved my supervisor and they're great. And oh my gosh, the supervisor broke me. And I felt like I wanted to leave the field. I have people on on both sides of the spectrum and, you know, everywhere in between. Um, But it's those like the, the, the unhealed aspect or parts of the supervisor coming through creating unhealed parts of therapists. It's such a disservice. And like, we're all human. So it happens just like our, our clients are superhuman and a lot of them don't want to look at that stuff. Um, but it makes it, it makes it really hard, especially I think in what I've heard, like there's just a lot of judgment too, from the inside and outside. There's just a lot of judgment in this field. I don't know why it bothers me. (laughs) There's a lot. It's like people save it up from, okay, we're not supposed to do that with clients and we're supposed to have unconditional positive regard, but like they just can't, I don't know if they get actually burnt out on trying to force themselves into that mindset or what, but like, that is something that should be worked through in supervision mm-hmm. and then addressing that, leaning into it and saying like, I know I'm not supposed to feel this way, but it's coming up anyway, processing that counter-transference where else it's showing up in life. And then separating this is supervision stuff and this is therapy stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that's what should be happening. And it's just, people would rather attack each other. I really like am starting to think that unfortunately, yeah. at least publicly. Yeah. I mean, I have been part of a few Facebook groups for therapists that I've eventually just kind of needed to walk away from because of the environment. And I mean, so f- that's all within the context of the past couple of years, making the bad sort of like blow up in our faces. And we're really able to see very clearly from all levels, how stuff has not been functioning well. And people, people are upset. People are tired. We're exhausted. Therapists, clients, 
people inside and outside of the field. We're all tired. We get mm-hmm. it. Um, but there, there does seem to be this odd sort of like, yeah, just this judge, judgment of other people or this attacking um, that does seem to come from, you know, if we're using parts language, which I really like parts language, there's a, a fearful or angry or unhealed part in each of us that maybe isn't necessarily coming out with clients, although it might, but it's coming out with each other. Yeah. And it's, it's exacerbated by burnout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that compounds people's fears around actually being able to be vulnerable and reach out for help. And, you know, every time I notice that like someone is doing something that is unethical in one of these groups that could be harmful to someone who is just learning and is watching and may be too afraid to comment um, or could harm clients who may also be in those groups because like, I mean, your specialty is proof positive. Like therapists should be in therapy, right? Like we're the clients too. You know, seeing that in these groups, eventually like someone has to say something and I hit a certain point and I'll call it out if I have to, I'll do it as lovingly as I can. But like the hate I receive for that. And then on the other side of it, I get like 12 new supervision clients on the other side of it every time I do it, because like we're like someone is finally saying what I'm too afraid to say. Yeah. And it creates more secrecy and perpetuates and reinforces more of the shame around supervision, which is such a parallel to the stigma of therapy that I, it blows my mind that people can't see when they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I like just for myself personally, I, during this past summer went out and sought my own supervisor to hire um, because I, I felt like I just needed some extra from what I was receiving at the place where I was working. Um, mm-hmm. And that was such a good idea for me. Like I had already earned all of my hours towards my license. I didn't necessarily need any more supervision hours, quote unquote need. Right. But I was good in terms of like legally meeting the requirements for my license. And I could have just said like, all right, I'm going to coast on through. We're good. Bye. But I like, I love supervision too. I love being a supervisee. Um, and I love when, when you can kind of like get a different perspective from the supervisor and yeah, I mean, you, you bring up your own stuff, like within supervision for myself, there was brought up a lot of ideas around like my fear of disappointing an employer, right? Like my fear of this employer being a, um, a disappointed parental figure. And I was like, oh shit, I didn't realize that was happening, but yep, you're correct. (laughs) why I think like supervision should be separate from where we are employed. Like our employer should handle administrative supervision. And obviously like if a crisis comes up, like there should be that point person, right? Like no matter where we are in our career, but it should also be separate. There should be yes, no overlap there because the person who is taking you through that, like personal stuff around your own attachment figures or whatever, should not be the same person that's like signing your paychecks or your performance evaluation. Yeah. 
And that was literally what it was for me. Like I was, and in every place that I've worked, because that's just how we have set it up to be standard. Like, oh yeah, you get, you get hired on somewhere and they provide supervision for free. So the person who is maybe directly supervising your performance and making sure that you're meeting billable units is also going to walk you through like your internal work being a therapist. I had no idea until it was pointed out to me by the yeah. supervisor that that's totally a dual relationship and it's not really that cool. Like it's not great. <laughs> yeah. It's not yeah. Great. And it's in, it's the norm yes. and it's so mind boggling to me to say the least to not, you know, get up on too much of a soapbox about it, but it's just really like, no wonder people are afraid. No wonder people are traumatized. There's a specter of if you don't do supervision, right you know, then you get fired. And then there's also this, like, if you go out and hire someone for private supervision, even if it's once a month, they serve you. If you have a supervisor through your agency where you are working to earn your hours, they work for the agency. Yep. And they might have some secondary gains for maybe disempowering you. I've seen it. Uh, one of the agencies around me is famous for not providing training opportunities or discouraging training in certain areas because clinicians who are empowered are clinicians who ask for more money or leave. And they are clinicians who help their clients get better. And if all of those things happen, their bottom line is severely affected and they stop getting things like grant money. I mean, just listening to you talk about that makes me feel all sorts of ways. <laughs> like, and that's, that has been sort of like the underlying thing that I've talked with so many guests on this show about is like, when the clinician is in a good empowered place where they're feeling confident and well-supported and like, they're able to be not so overworked that they can be curious and they can expand their skill set and they can, you know, be a person outside of being a therapist that ultimately is in the service of the clients. Right. But I mean, mm -hmm. as you just highlighted some places, not all, but some mm -hmm. places, um, their concern goes beyond that, or maybe the, the client wellness or clinician wellness is just, it's a second thought. Mm -hmm which I, I hate saying that. Right. And that makes me, it makes me feel so icky just acknowledging that, but like, we have to be able to acknowledge that there are parts of our industry that are doing that. Um, very, very obviously. Um, and to acknowledge it is to be able to say, okay, this is happening. How do we change this? Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard, especially early in our careers. And I, I view that period of time, like early attachment for us, because there are a lot of parallels there, you know, so early in our careers, everything feels relatively new. And there's a lot of fraud syndrome that I think gets subconsciously reinforced, mm -hmm. um, especially like I went to a very small undergrad, very small grad school. Um, I was a big fish in a little pond all of a sudden, and it was scary. And I felt very vulnerable. And it was like, being dropped off for the first day of kindergarten all over again. Um, and I didn't have that trusted parental figure that I could really even just like hold space for that and just like, bring me all your stuff. It's okay. It's okay. And 
I think a lot of the stewards of the people who are that early in their careers, um, you know, they're often department heads, they're often, um, you know, directors of some kind, and they may have had great clinical experience 12 years ago. Um, and they're probably not seeing too many clients, which means they're probably not in their own clinical supervision. Um, they can't take you very deeply because just like therapy and like, they can only take us as deeply as they've taken themselves. And I think my very first supervisor was a great example of that amazing person, but she was just so stretched thin and not setting boundaries that she couldn't show that to me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thinking back to my own supervision experiences and like, I've had a lot of supervisors. So I'm kind of trying to think like there are some who, they were, they were part of the same organization, but fortunately they were in clinical practice and they were not supervising me directly within my program. It was great. And so they had at least some distance and they did not care as much about me meeting the, like the billable unit goals or whatever for the program. They were more concerned with, Hey, um, you're, you're basically working a split shift and you're exhausted and that's not good for your health. And you're doing way too much. Your clients are dictating your schedule. It's no wonder you feel like after five months, you're going to fall apart. So let's take a breath here. Let's try to figure out how this schedule can work better for you. So you can have boundaries and like be home at a reasonable time. And that was like, it was such a breath of fresh air because I mean, I, I liked the program supervisors who were directly managing me, but they were very invested in the program functioning. Um, and you know, fidelity to the model, all that kind of stuff. Fine. It's great. Like we can, we can do that. But like having that separate voice was like, oh, oh, like this. Okay. This actually isn't necessarily healthy for me to do it this way. And he was that person, that supervisor was really the first one to ever point out that I was burned out and I didn't realize it. Yeah. And when he said it, it it was a relief and also just like, oh shit, like damn it. Yeah. Yeah. I had, um, my, so I stayed at the same place, but in a different program doing in office outpatient work, um, for my second year. And I actually have two supervisors. I had one who was more my like one-on-one guy. He was super administrative. Um, and then there was another two people who kind of tag teamed it. Um, one who actually took his job when he retired. Um, and she was my very first exposure to a trauma therapist. She was amazing. Um, and she was not my supervisor. I was also in a counseling program and she was a social worker from Smith who was just like this, honestly, powerhouse. I loved her. Um, and she would just lead all of the interns, regardless of what school you came from or where you were through this like experiential group of group therapy essentially for interns. And it was like group therapy, but supervision. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's where I started seeing like, this is why it's beneficial to walk that line and why that's actually really hard to do at a place that is your employer. Um, I think I like cried every single (laughs) meeting we had because it was just either really beautiful watching everybody else share where they were at, or she would share where she was at and just use it as like, 
I'm still one of you. These credentials don't mean anything. We are humans first, um, at least in that room. And she was the only person who was like really making space for that. She was teaching another person to do that too. And so I got to see the reflective aspect of the teaching too. I learned more from them than I learned from any of my prior supervisors and from like any of my professors at that point mm-hmm. because it made an emotional impact. Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's what this work is beyond all of the certifications and the licensure and the hours and all that, all that, like it's a relational emotional experience. Every single time you step into a room with a client or a supervisee or supervisor, um, it's what it is. Yeah. And to not be a good steward to that on either end. I mean, it, it really does a disservice to everybody who's involved. Yeah, it does. Because then people just hold on to their stuff, assuming that they're the only one experiencing it that way. And that they don't deserve that healing aspect, or they don't deserve to take up space with someone who literally signed up to be their supervisor um, and just expecting them to handle it and, or exploring why they feel like they can't be safe with that person to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, not having that mirror to just reflect things back. You know, I think a lot is missed throughout that early teaching process that then gets reinforced as years go on. So you might have somebody who has 25 years experience, but like they're very cold and sterile and and can't do that depth work because they don't know what it actually feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is probably a broad generalization. I'll just speak from my own experience of kind of seeing how this can play out. Um, you know, I had a therapist of my own back when I was in my early twenties, well, mm-hmm. late teens, even, cause I was going through a pretty abusive relationship. And so I was seeing this person at the time. Um, and like, she was helpful enough. Um, obviously somebody who's in that type of relationship usually takes their own time getting out of it, which I did eventually. Um, but I ended up looking her up way later on, um, probably only a few years ago, just to see like, oh, could I restart with this person? Cause like she was helpful at a time when I was suffering. Um, she's been in the field for probably 20 years. And, you know, I, I looked her up and I saw some disciplinary actions against her license because she had really violated boundaries with a client who had a diagnosable personality disorder. Um, mm. And she was, you know, by the board required to go through supervision. It was like, I mean, it, that sucks. And I think it's easy at the start of your career to be like, I would never get there. I'd never get there. I'd never cross a boundary like that. But like, if you're not, if you're not paying attention to your own internal process and having that reflective time, and it, you know, obviously it doesn't have to be every single week for the rest of your career, but like, we all need sounding boards. We need people to hold us in a certain space. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, more than anything, I just felt compassion for that therapist of mine. Cause like, I, I mean, I hope I would never get to that space, but I could see without proper support. Yeah. How you could get there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you hear about it all the time. And like, I, I distinctly remember 
in graduate school, um, we were obviously, we were talking about all of the ethical requirements of our, you know, various certifications, licenses, degrees, things like that. Just, we had several classes on ethics. And I remember really scoffing at this idea that like people were having sex with their clients or something like egregious stuff. And I'm just like, did did they just wake up one morning and do that? And as I've gotten to know more professionals in the field and everything who are like varying degrees of really towing the line with boundaries, which I think is valuable and also challenging and you can't do it by yourself. Mm -hmm. I've seen the ugliest side of that. And I think now more than ever, especially because of COVID, like I'm working from my home right now. Like this is, you're in my house. My kitchen's right there. Like, I mean, you're in my house. Yeah. <laughs> the veil is thinner and there's more of our stuff just on display with like the world and social media and people like sharing stories on social media, things like that. So like clients do know more about us or that, that boundary is blurred And some people just were kind of thrown into that and have had to be responsive. So, and and that's just one global situation that's impacted all of us. Mm -hmm. And good supervision is something that helps us navigate that and also make space for us, the person, not just us, the therapist, who's also feeling like we're working 24 seven sometimes because we're working from home. Mm -hmm. So, you know if people aren't doing that and they've been in the field for a very long time, I could totally see how things might come unraveled. I'm not making excuses. I'm not saying it's okay, but like, this is what happens when we get burnt out and we are desensitized and not paying attention. And we're not having discussions about what's our shit and what's everybody else's and what are we doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Which is why I mean, I think having all of these conversations is super important um, is why I wanted to kind of like come in in this area of burnout, um, because that is like such a major part of the journey for a lot of people. And, you know, I'm of the belief that it doesn't have to be for some reason we've convinced ourselves that it just is like, oh, yeah, you're you're gonna get burned out. Like, but why? Um, so, yeah, like bringing bringing people together to at least talk about it and acknowledge it, the stuff that feels really like shadow worky or just like deep and gross. Like I don't, some people may not want to admit that part of their burnout is being angry at their clients. Yeah. They they don't want to admit that burnout means that they're in maybe in their own perspective, a shitty partner Mm -hmm. to their, their Mm -hmm. spouse or whatever. Like it's hard to admit, especially in this role where you're like, I am a helper. I am helping people heal to be like, yeah. And I'm feeling very unhealed in some ways right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's where supervision is so key to help us bring the human part of who we are, however we're showing up into therapy mm-hmm. with our clients. Right. Because like I, full disclosure, this past like year, year and a half has been fraught with a lot of grief. A lot of like, we're going through the process of adopting, um, and it's a kinship adoption. So it's mm-hmm. been like a lot of ugh, boundaries and challenges and milestones. And we lost two dogs during the pandemic. Like 
had one, he passed, got one again. He ended up being very sick mm. and unexpectedly passed while quarantining with COVID. Like it was just mind blowing nonstop. And then a father figure of mine passed like five seconds later. And I still had to show up for my clients and they do give me life. Sometimes they're the reason I get out of bed. Right. But I had to double down on my supervision during that. I had someone I was seeing probably like once a month and I'd tag team that with like therapy. So I could ferret that stuff out and then work through it in therapy and come back and complete the puzzle. And it was just, if I hadn't had that, Ooh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what kind of damage I would have done because I have that impulsivity of ADHD too, where like emotion is like action. Mm -hmm. Um, and trying not to put my own stuff on my clients like that was really, really tricky this particular season of time. Um, and I just, I, I want the therapists out there who are hearing this to think critically about what are, what are we doing? What are we doing to make sure we're taking care of ourselves? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, how has that needed to shift during COVID? Are we responding to that? Or are we putting ourselves last again? Yeah, I think, I think I've heard a lot of folks feeling like they've put themselves last and have recognized and are now trying to course correct, um, and at least put themselves on equal, equal footing with the other people in their lives. Um, but yeah, I mean, just because we're a therapist doesn't mean that our personal lives stop and stay good. (laughs) Obviously. No, no. <laughs> no. Um, and I mean, I can agree. Like the 2021 was professionally for me. Like there, I've talked about it a little bit on the show, and kind of similar but different to your stories. Like there's just been yeah. over the past year and a half tons of change for me because I moved to rural Indiana from urban Minneapolis in the middle of the pandemic, right after the social unrest. Um, I moved away from a home and people that I knew and loved to this like small little town. I'm just like trying to figure it out. Moved in with my partner. It's great. We're still learning (laughs) what it means to live with a partner. Um, And on top of that, like just professionally, a lot of uncertainty um, in what direction I wanted to go. And I was I have been not so much anymore, but over 2021, I was feeling really, what's the word? Unmoored, I think is a word. Like mm-hmm. I felt like I was out at sea a lot of the time. Um, and it wasn't until I sought out my own supervisor to help me with those professional struggles where I was like, okay, I can, I can start making my way through this. I can mm-hmm. figure it out. I'm not just like out here in the middle of the ocean by myself. Um, I'm actually closer to land than I thought I was, but I just didn't have perspective on that. Um, and I mean, that was amazing to have, to have somebody be like, actually, look, there's a little bit of land over there. We just gotta, gotta start swimming this direction. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I'm off in the same way as by the time I get super efficient and like, my supervisor is so wonderful. She uses mostly the person of the therapist training model, which I so appreciate. She's an LMFT. So, Mm -hmm. you know, definitely that experiential type through and through. Um, 
And I just really value that because she is so calmly able to like filter all my smoke (laughs) and just really brings me back to me, not to her. You know, she uses, she helps me use myself as that like true North and, and get through all of the stuff, like the jungle (laughs) and just really get back to that space that feels clear and, and grounded for me. And my therapist does that too, but in a totally different way this is more specifically focused on like career and where I do want to go because as a person with ADHD, I'm like, Oh, shiny, this thing and this thing. And, and like, I, before I know it, like my desk just has a mountain of things on it that I'm like, you know, passively interested in and I'm not accomplishing things. And then I feel like crap about myself. And she just really helps me whittle down like, okay, you don't have to do all of this stuff right now. It's okay. It's okay. Never actually do it, you know? Um, and just really helps me find the things that are the most in alignment so that I can double down on those things and also use them to help other people, my supervisees, my consultees, my clients. Um, she's really transformed my career in a lot of ways in a very short amount of time. So, you know, if I hadn't had that as an adjunct to therapy, I would not have gone nearly as far with my own self to then be able to turn around and help the next person. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's important for all of us to know that it it doesn't necessarily matter what stage of your career you're in. Like we've, like we've said, right. You could be in this field for 20 years. Um, especially if you're listening now as Rebecca is talking and you're like, Oh shit. Like, yeah, I could probably use supervision. I mean, it's okay. Wherever you are, like, it's okay to realize now that you've probably needed this. Um, and honestly, like when I was early in my career, I didn't really think that I could independently seek out supervision. I was like, Oh, I just have to get it through, you know, the place I'm working, but it seems like that's not true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm a dinosaur. So coming up for me, um, zoom meetings were like maybe just starting to be a thing sort of, but it was like, you were an anomaly and you were super fancy if you did things that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I didn't know that it was actually possible for a very long time until, um, I want to say until I got EMDR trained and I had to seek out consultation to become certs, you know, certified and everything like that. And it was like, there's this whole other world out here that's yeah. been just there for the taking the whole time. I had no idea. <laughs> um, it just, I wonder how much that would have shaped those early years. So, yeah. you know, that people are just coming out of grad school, like this initiation by fire with COVID and um, having to navigate that, but also being kind of isolated. Like I just, this new generation of therapists is going to be some of the best supervisors to ever walk the face of the planet someday. I can't wait. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. Like, <laughs> I mean, I started my career six months before COVID hit. I don't know what I, I graduated in 2019. And so it was like in the first year of my you know, postgraduate profession where it started. Um, but yeah, like 
I had the benefit of not having to deal with that when I was in graduate school. I got to have the in-person mm-hmm. interactions during internships. And yeah, like this is this right now in COVID era is absolutely baptism by fire for therapists who are coming into the field. I have mad respect for all of them mm-hmm. who are graduating and saying, okay, I'm keep going. And even for folks who are like, actually, no, this is not for me. Mad respect. Like, that's great that you can yeah. recognize that. Um, but for the folks who are graduating or early in their career, or just like in general for everybody, how would you recommend that they go about finding the right supervisor for them? Mm. Well, I would really recommend, um, as much as Facebook can make me cringe often, um, getting into or starting local Facebook groups of clinicians. Um, if you don't have one in your area, make one because it could be a treasure trove of referrals and resources and announcements and advocacy work. Uh, you can kind of make it anything you want, but, um, starting those conversations, asking the questions without obviously giving too much detail, but also being receptive to people when they say things like, you know, I actually have some expertise in this area. Let's talk. Um, let's, let's have a supervision session, see how you feel. Mm -hmm. Um, even if you don't do it for hours, even if you just get your hours through work, but you get like your real supervision, like with a different supervisor, it could really save your butt. Um, there's a lot of great peer supervision groups out there too, where even if it's somebody across the country in a place where you're not looking to get licensed, get the experience anyway. It might be free. It might be cheap. You might, like I said, have somebody at work signing off on your hours, but you can get such deeper experience just through looking around what's available online. Um, I know Therapy Den offers like a section for uh, supervision as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of really good supervision directories out there. Finally, mm-hmm. two of them just launched in the last couple months. Uh, so, you know, there's yeah. more resources than there ever were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I love Therapy Den. I've gotten some really high quality client referrals there. And I do see on there, like, are you providing supervision? Which I'm not yeah. right now, obviously, but yeah, I think those are good, good ideas. Um, and one thing that I, um, I realized, I suppose, <laughs> since I started this podcast, cause I, I think it was, um, Matthew Brayman, he was on the show quite a while ago, but he had mentioned that he's starting a consultation group and it's like, mm-hmm. also do that, you know, like you can have peer consultation where, Maybe it costs money, maybe it doesn't, but gather a few of your trusted colleagues and just start meeting, right? Like have your guidelines for following ethics and HIPAA, but start meeting, give each other support. Yeah. I think it's funny you say that. I just started, um, just like a, a peer support group, honestly, like not even a supervision group, just a peer support, like if you're grieving massively and trying to figure out how to still wake up and do work or whatever the case may be. Um, and some of the people I'm actually like just friends with. So it's very informal. It's not therapy. It's not supervision, but it's really about setting aside that time and committing to it and putting it on your calendar every single month and saying like, okay, 
this is when I'm available for this. If you want to drop in great. And it, it throws down the gauntlet a little bit for other people to also create that space. And so far, I mean, people made really good use of that time so far. And I think they're going to continue um, mm-hmm. about making this space. You don't have to be the expert in the room. You don't even have to be an expert. Just be in the room. You don't have to talk if you don't want to. Yeah. Which I, at least for myself, I can't speak for everybody, but for myself as somebody who has like worked a a lot (laughs) to try to be an expert in something because I, you know, I am recognizing and looking back at early career me, you know, getting all the trainings and reading all the books. It's like, I need to feel like an expert in something. Otherwise nobody's going to pay me. Um, And now to turn that around and say like, actually you have the skills, you have knowledge, um, you can just like show up. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I was actually talking with somebody about this recently. Um, I'm actually, I'm joining a program with Felicia Keller Boyle. She was on, I think her episode aired a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week. I don't know. Um, but in talking with her about joining her like business coaching program, she's like, you can allow yourself to just be held in this space by other people. Like you don't have to show up as the leader. You don't have to show up as the one who's going to like do everything. And I was like, ah, (laughs) yes. And like, that's not a space that I'm familiar with. And I'd like Mm -hmm. to be. Yeah. I definitely noticed the same thing in that peer group I was talking about. Just it, I've spent a lot of time, like the last probably five, six, seven years. I don't even know of my EMDR career specifically. It's been all EMDR all the time, like climbing the ranks, essentially getting almost like a doctorate by the time you get done with it and you know, the final cost and all that stuff. Um, it's a lot to, to start becoming a basic trainer in EMDR. And that's my goal. And to just be in a room with a group of people where I'm not teaching and I'm not the consultant and it doesn't have to come from me and I don't have to bring the energy. I was like, Oh my God, this is so, I like needed a cigarette after that. Okay. <laughs> in my life, I was like, I didn't even know how much I needed that. I was just, I had a bunch of friends who were going through stuff and I was like, let's just all get in a room together and see if other people want to join too. That was literally the, the thought I put into it. Didn't plan an agenda, nothing. And I just got to sit there and be the space holder quietly just like offering that support and care and I was just like I never could have done this with any one of these friends individually either Mm -hmm. in this way it was Mm -hmm. so freaking nice like and I've been in this field for like quite a bit I I'm mad at myself I didn't take the time to do that so if you're if you're a veteran in this field and you're feeling burnt out that's my challenge to you is make space to do that and just notice what you notice yeah, absolutely. Join, join your peers and just allow yourself to be there. Yeah. Call mm-hmm. each other in, you know, just, Hey, how are you? Old coworkers haven't seen you in a little bit. Like that's, that's what half of them were old coworkers. And it was so nice Yeah, in the new iteration of all of our careers. Now we've gone separate directions. Some of us were interns together and it was just nice. It was exactly what we needed. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of, um, 
what I've maintained about wanting to have this show. And actually as, as we're recording this, I'm sort of like in the process of building up, um, like an online, I call, I'm calling it the anti-work therapist collective, but Mm -hmm. it's really just like, you know, a space to come in and join and be part of a community, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with the hopes that people are going to actually show up and invest in it and show up for each other. And that's been the whole thing is like, whether you work at an agency or on your own or anywhere in between, like these experiences can be really isolating. Uh, I've had a number of people who haven't, um, they haven't wanted to be on the show, but they've contacted me saying like, I have felt so isolated. I have felt so alone in this process. Just hearing stories from people on the show has helped with that, even if Mm -hmm. I'm not talking with them directly. Um, And so like, yeah, part of what I want to do and continue to do is intentionally create space for people to join and actually be together, even if it's online. Um, Yeah, to just to have that space to show up and give and receive support. Totally. It's more needed than ever. And I think many of us are not looking at going back into these like giant collective offices or shared office spaces and I don't know if there's going to be an after COVID time or not. I think it's just going to be something that continues to evolve personally. Um, And we still need to be able to have that because I would not have gotten through my internships if I didn't have that like little hive where all the other interns were. And I mean, we had like PsyD interns from Antioch and social work interns from like BC and Simmons and Smith and like, so there was a really rich learning environment there that I think current interns have harder time accessing. And, you know, I, I just, I hope that people will take that challenge to do that for themselves or to join one that already exists regardless. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you just started your first day of counseling school, like fine, you know, uh, yeah, we need each other. We really need each other. That's how we get through burnout. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, just a side note, I love that you mentioned Antioch. Cause like I went to the new England campus. I mean, I did their yeah. distance based program, but like love Antioch. So yeah. <laughs> oh, we had some awesome, awesome interns from Antioch that just mm-hmm. like, I learned so much from them and the life experiences they had that like, if I hadn't had that exposure, I, I don't know what I would have lost, but you know, I, I hope people are able to hang on to those contacts. Um, even, even the ones who aren't great, <laughs> even supervisors who aren't great, you can still learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. If not, you know, just what you would rather not do in your own practice. <laughs> yes. And like make that supervision genogram and highlight for yourself. Like, where are those gaps? Where are those gaps? Where are those areas that we like could have developed or where are some things that we need to heal that aren't ours that we're carrying that we don't know we're carrying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, having this conversation has made me glad that I have my own supervisor, um, even yeah. though I, you know, have my license or whatever, like mm-hmm. after, after contracting with the supervisor, I feel like I'll want to keep her around for quite a long time, even if it is only once a month or every couple months, like just having that space to show up and talk about things is going to be valuable. Um, yeah. So 
outside of work, because um, I'm, I'm trying to start focusing a little bit on encouraging people to see themselves as more than just therapists. Um, so what do you do outside of work to help you feel invigorated and to, you know, as much as you're able to mm-hmm. stave off some of the burnout, especially in COVID times? Yeah, I love this question. Um, so I mentioned that my family is adopting my niece. Um, she's going to be my niece. So my sister is adopting her. Um, she is technically my second cousin and we got her. It was the October before the pandemic officially started. And she is the light of my little life. She's two and a half now or going on two and a half. Um, and she's just so much fun with that toddler energy and just, she reconnects me to a totally different part of myself. Like her little hugs, just, I live for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's learning so much. Her brain's like a little sponge right now. Um, and she came through some really, really challenging situations as her start. And so being able to see her resiliency has really been an inspiration that I was not expecting. <laughs> Uh, so that's my like main form of self-care. Um, I have that weird seasonal depression where I actually like have a harder time in the summer than the winter. Um, I'm like just coming out of it now. So cooking like really hearty meals, like I got chicken soup going right now. It's just like, you know, slow cooker type meals with a lot of flavor that take time. It's like a meditation. I love that kind of thing. Um, and just hitting the pause button, you know, not being too proud to like binge watch something on a weekend because why not? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, so, absolutely. And going and house plants like that's I'm simple. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Sometimes simplicity is like the best cure to things. It's just like, yeah, let's cut out all of this noise and just plants, Netflix, mm-hmm. food. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> It really, it, it doesn't take much. And I think there's something to be said for simplifying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I also very much appreciate the, um, the slow, slow meal, uh, stuff as of right now, like my fiance, he used to work as a chef. And so like he does all the food, which is fantastic. (laughs) Um, but I do like, I do know that there are those times where you get to really mindfully put something together and Mm. sort of like watch it or smell it cook. Um, and it has like all the nuance to all the spices. Um, and yeah, that, that is such a nice thing to be able to just like slow down and just participate in the action of creating something that is ultimately primarily for your pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to like enjoy it again, you know, have it the next day. There's like that forethought of like, I'm taking care of me tomorrow mm-hmm. or I'm putting the rest of the soup in the freezer because I know there's going to come a day where I have a cold and I don't want to cook and I just want fresh chicken noodle soup. So, yeah. you know, and that's just one example of just like thinking just a little bit forward like that. Um, you know, being able to revisit like favorite books, like trauma stewardship and like check in about my burnout and where it is and 
how I can work around that and learning all those new little ways to do that as time marches on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will say um, trauma stewardship. I believe the author's name is Laura Van Der Lipsky. Is that it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fantastic book for anybody who's listening. Love it. It's a great book. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's for folks who, you know, are in this field, but also like climate activists and activists in other areas. Um, Really wonderful. So anybody who's listening, who's feeling burnt out, please pick up that book. (laughs) It's great. Um, (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Yeah. So just to kind of like wrap up the conversation, usually what I like to ask people as well. Um, if you were to leave the audience with something to think about or something to chew on as we're you know, closing down this conversation, what would you want them to know? Mm, I love that question. Um, I think I'd want them to know wherever they're at with burnout or not in burnout or not really sure, it's okay. And probably most other people around you are feeling it too. And maybe they're not speaking on it. Maybe they're too in it to be able to even identify it, but don't be afraid to say something. You will find your people. Your people will find you. But if you don't say anything, you're going to suffer alone. And you've come way too far to do that. And you work way too hard for other people to suffer yourself. So this is my loving, gentle nudge to reach out, find, find your person, find one person that you can really rely on for that, who gets it, preferably who's in our field. Yeah. Because our other friends and family, like they're wonderful, but they just don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And within those relationships, obviously there's stuff that you can't talk about. And that's a big part of it is being able to talk through some of the more nuanced aspects of things that like you can't necessarily tell your spouse or your best friend the details. Right. And having to do that labor of explaining like, and this is how this person's trauma is showing up here and triggering and blood. Like, nope, <laughs> find yourself other people who are in the field or aligned with this field who get it enough that you don't have to do extra work teaching when you're just trying to receive. Yeah. 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 I think that's really good advice. Um, whether that's supervision or consultation meetings or peer support, or just a colleague that you really trust, like there's, there's going to be at least one person out there who, who can help you and who probably would be helped by you as well in that process. Absolutely. Absolutely. For every one person who speaks on an issue, there's about a hundred more who are too afraid to. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is the truth. (laughs) All right. Well, I've super enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much uh, for joining. I think the audience will find a lot of value in what you've had to share today. So I really appreciate it. I appreciate every single one of them for listening. I appreciate you for creating this space to talk about it because there's a lot of shame and stigma that goes with feeling burnt out and, you know, a lot of not knowing how to handle it. So thank you for being direct. And I know it comes from a place of experience. So unfortunately, you know, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sorry that happened, but I'm loving what you're doing with it. So thank you for also being a good like therapy ancestor. 
Oh, that actually makes me feel really good. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And I hope that whoever or wherever you are, you can start having more conversations in your circles of support about better ways to support ourselves and to support each other through burnout. If you like today's show, please make sure to head over to wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you left a rating and a review on there to help get the word out. Thanks so much, y'all. Until next time, take care of yourselves, and I will see you again soon.